I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick an obscure topic and then walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... J.J. Arms. Who is J.J. Arms? Well, he's a private investigator, an author, and an actor. He's most widely known for living an over-the-top, glamorous life of international intrigue, high-stakes life-or-death situations, and solving crimes most men fail to even coming close to resolving. That, that didn't make grammatical sense. He's most widely known for living an over-the-top life of international intrigue, high-stakes life-or-death situations, and solving crimes most men fail to even come close to resolving. He also did all this while having no hands. That's right, this international man of mystery in question accomplished all this while being a double amputee. Destiny of Lesser Men, The Fate of Heroes. J.J. Arms was born on August 12, 1932, and grew up in El Paso, Texas. At the age of 11, Arms and his older friend Dick Cables broke into a Texas and Pacific Railroad section house and stole railway torpedoes. The older boy convinced Arms to take the torpedoes and smack them together, thinking that it would make a very loud sound. However, they exploded, mangling both of Arms' hands beyond repair. Dick Cables being... sounds like a shitty, like, Silver Age bully character from Spider-Man or something. Yeah, like one, one I mean, of they his, both one do. Of his school J.J. Bullies. Arms and Dick Cables, like, well, what I mean, the fuck? As we'll find out later, there's a reason why J.J. Arms sounds like a comic book character name. But Dick Cables, apparently that's the name his mom gave him. Yep, yeah. I mean, he could have been Richard Cables, but no, he was Dick Cables. Mm-hmm. Richard Cable sounds like a award-winning news anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tonight on a special 2020 episode, Richard Cables. <laughs> yeah, Richard Cables is the guy that's like interviewing better. JJ Arms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After being rushed to the hospital, Arms' hands and upper arms were completely amputated in order to save his life. After falling into a severe depression and basically being ostracized from his school, Arms came to the realization that he could either relent to this tragedy that happened to him, or he could turn it into a show. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what that. I, I can. Usually, I don't know what that means either. I can usually figure out what you meant to type, but I don't know. Yeah. it's one of those. It's one of those typos where you just can't trace it back to the origin. Part of the reason is this. I uh, I'm apologizing in advance. This episode's outline is going to be real wonky because I have fucked up my right hand, um, and I've had it in a brace <gasps> all week. Today's you were the first method day acting. That- what? Oh You're yeah, meth- I was method acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I've been used. So I wrote this whole script with talk to text. You had to uh, get into the mind of JJ Arms. Um, but I've been keeping it in a in a cast for the last like four days or five days, so it's it's better now. Now listen, um, now, now Dave, do you want to to nurse it back to health, or do you want to allow it to atrophy and force yourself to have to get a hook hand? Uh, no, I definitely want to nurse it back to health. I, I, I thought about that. Do. I thought about that a lot. What what is the what's the turning point? Because right now, prosthetic hands, prosthetic limbs in general, uh, as advanced as they are, they're still like you. You see somebody with a prosthetic limb, 
they're either they either favor uh they either favor mimicking an actual limb at the expense of functionality some of these prosthetic robotic hands that they where they actually try to give you like a hand with five five fingers the move and they and they try to like connect it to the 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 muscle uh the the muscles in your arm so that you can actually control the 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 robotics with your mind but it's very slow very robotic it, it's kind of like i'm gonna pick up this apple one two three four five and then or they favor function where you have like a hook or one of those really well-designed carbon fiber like uh, you know, like the, you know, the, the people that have lost their legs and they're, they're runners. So they have those like those things like the the girl in um, Kingsman had. Uh, yeah, they're, they're like they're like they're like kind of horseshoe. Looking, yeah, where they like don't speed. They don't look prosthetic. They don't look realistic at all. They 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 don't they're not they're not trying to mimic a real limb. They're just they're they serve a function. Uh, you can run with it or a hook. You can pick things up or grab things or whatever. Uh, I've always thought about like when technology has where's the tipping point where technology gets pushed so far over the line that we can have uh, a a robotic or prosthetic limb that basically just for all intents and purposes looks and functions like a real arm or whatever like like in movies like when you have like Luke Skywalker who gets his arm cut off and you see the hand and it's like a robot but then he puts the glove on and from that point on it's just Mark Hamill's actual hand obviously in a glove where's the tipping point where we get so far over the line that people start either purposely injuring themselves so that they're forced to get a robot hand and use their and use their insurance money to get it paid for or are having elective amputations so that they can have the robot arm. My favorite robot arm is the one from Repo Man. That's just a shitty glove with like metal parts glued to it that doesn't yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Like if you didn't know it was supposed to be a robot hand, you wouldn't. You would just think she was wearing a weird glove, and you'd just be like, what's, "Why is why is everyone like looking at her weird glove?" And like, what's the significance of the glove? What's that David Carradine movie where he has one of those too? Where it's he's it's like a sci-fi western where David Carradine is a bounty hunter and he has a robot hand that shoots lasers. I don't know. And it's like a it's like a Corman movie. Future Force is the name of that weird shitty movie. Future with, Force, uh, yeah. There is a there is a, a an EP by a band called Fight Like Apes that is called David Carradine is a bounty hunter whose robotic arm hates your crotch. Fuck yeah. <laughs> whenever whenever I whenever I Google searched David Carradine robot hand, it was the first result. And then the second result, ironically, is Future Force. Uh, anyway, we should probably we should probably <laughs> get back to the outline. <laughs> I love I love robot arms. I love robot arms too. And basically, you know, uh JJ Arms has a, you know, he comes to a crossroad in his young life where he decides, well, I can either give into this and let this tragedy that's befallen me um, define my life, or I can make this into a it, almost like a professional wrestling gimmick, you know, or like a superhero yeah. origin story where I can I can make this my thing that I can leapfrog off of and have a bigger, better life. Can we just say um, the word? Can we just say the word right now? Just. We don't have to talk. We don't have to go into it. We don't have to delve into it. But let's just say the word kayfabe and leave it yeah. there. Plant it like a seed, 
And then we're going to nurture that seed. We're going to water it. We're going to put it, we're going to, we're going to enrich it with the finest of soils. We're going to, we're going to build a hydroponic laboratory around it and cultivate it in its natural habitat. So, so leapfrogging off of that in the, the uh, JJ Arms, obviously he lives, he lived in El, El Paso and left for a little while and then went back to El Paso. So he was born there, left for a little while to California and then came back there later in life. Have you ever been this to El Paso? A, I've never been to El Paso. No. Uh, I used to go to El Paso all the time because uh, like, I mean, you're, you're, yeah, I guess El Paso, if, if you were going to go to Mexico, you'd probably, you'd probably go, yeah, you wouldn't go to El Paso because that's too far away from where you grew up. But where I grew up, that was the quickest way to go to Mexico was El Paso was the nearest border town um, from where I grew up in uh, Roswell, New Mexico. And so we go to we go to Mexico all the time. When I was younger, we went to Juarez, uh, mm. which is which is bordering El Paso, Texas. And, you know, much like much like most border towns on either side, it's a fucking shithole. Yep. Uh, El, El Paso sucks. Well, we're about to delve into that. <laughs> Pretty deeply. Uh, in nineteen in nineteen fifty three, the El Paso Times wrote this article, which I'm going to read almost in its entirety. Seven years ago, Julian Armas, then thirteen, told his friend that someday I'll be an actor or a lawyer. Friends agreed his ambitions were fine, but they didn't believe that he would make his goal. Julian had a handicap. His hands had been amputated following an explosion from a railway torpedo, which he had been playing with. Julian, son of Mr. and Mrs. Pete D. Armas of Isleta, has realized his ambition to act. He's still studying to be a lawyer. We were all surprised, Miss Beatrice Domingo, Julian's sister, said. Julian always worked hard, but we didn't think he'd actually really become an actor. Julian, who changed his name to J. Arms for professional purposes, will return to Isleta Monday by plane to visit his family. Julian plans to take his mother back to California for a visit. At home, he will have a lot of things to tell his family about movies because his parents, sisters, and brothers don't go to shows. We just don't care about them, said Mrs. Domingo. We've seen movies, though. I saw one when I went to school. Then in Puerto Rico, where my husband was stationed, I went to a movie once. My father and brother went to California to see Julian in January. They saw a movie then. But if a movie comes to town that Julian is in, we'll definitely go see it. Julian calls us by phone quite often. He'd like to give us things, too, but we don't want him to. He's worked hard for what he has. We think he should keep his money for himself. He has a family to look out for. Julian was different from the rest of our family. He always liked movies and went to see them as often as he could. He was the only one of the family that went to the shows. We're awfully proud of him. Julian's accident occurred in May 1946. By September, he had gotten his hooks and learned how to use them. He attended his Leda High and studied dramatics at El Paso Technical Institute. He worked as an usher in a theater and sold newspapers. In August 1949, Julian had saved enough money to go to Hollywood, where he continued his dramatic acting training. A talent scout noticed him and signed him to a picture. Since then, he's appeared in numerous pictures for a hospital in Honolulu and for an army and navy hospitals, demonstrating the use of his artificial hands. He has also appeared in Dangerous Assignment, produced in Morocco, and he traveled to Paris for a part in The Sign of the Flame. Now there is a promise of a television series to star Julian in Hollywood. 
I never saw a boy change as much as Julian, F.W. Cooper, superintendent of Isleta Public Schools, said. After his incident, he seemed to be determined that he would not let this be a handicap. He was never discouraged or sorry for himself. He's always been cheerful. In addition to Miss Domingo, Julian has another sister, Eva, and two brothers, Peter Jr. and uh, Constantino. So that ran in the paper and is a kind of local boy done good uh, article about Julian. And that's J.J. Uh, Arms. That's the that's the first time that I could find something about him written. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's interesting because it's just like, he's an actor. He's an actor. And we'll quickly see how that narrative evolves um, due to his extreme um, accomplishments. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting to see the reading that article. Uh, there a lot of the things are referenced very vaguely, but see, like this this article came out in um, 1953, and it's interesting to see uh, all the seeds planted in this article. Things that he was clearly talking about way back then, like some of the things that he was saying that he claims, uh, you know, that he's claiming, you know, as we get into the meat of the story. He was planting those seeds way back then, back in back in 1953, when he, whenever he was still younger, when he still had his whole infamy in front of him, um, when he had just come back from uh, L.A. to El Paso, uh, he was already planting some of these seeds. In 1958, J.J. Arms moves to Los Angeles in order to pursue his acting career as detailed above. He failed to procure any meaningful traction, though and inevitably moved back to El Paso. As a means of making ends meet, he started to do private investigating on the side. He found that he had an abnormal aptitude for it and decided to start doing it professionally. J.J. Arms' most high-profile case during this time period is when he was contracted by Marlon Brando to rescue his son, Christian Brando, who'd been abducted and held for ransom. That's fucking crazy. Like. It's so crazy to me that Marlon Brando would be like, what, dude with hook for hands? You you can rescue my son? Yeah, sure, fuck it. And then the fact that he actually did it. I mean, of course Marlon Brando would do that. <laughs> actually, now that you say that, now he's, yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm, I'm sure he probably could. He's like, he's like, I've been sitting on, I I'm not even going to try to do a Brando. <laughs> I, uh, but I, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even be surprised if he was like, I've been sitting on this case for a while looking for the right detective. Right. But, I only but, um, want a detective that doesn't have yeah, hands. He could have <laughs> he there he could have had somebody looking for him for weeks, but he was like, Nope, you're just a normal guy. This is not not good enough. Um imagine all that in a Marlon Brando impression. Um but yeah, I mean no matter no matter what you think, no matter what is true or not true about any of this, no matter what you think, it's a fact that he rescued Marlon Brando's son. That's not that's that's of everything, we know that that is not made up. Maybe the circumstances around how he did it are uh, debatable, but he did retrieve Marlon Brando's son. After obtaining the necessary background information on the location at which Marlon Brando's son, Christian Brando, was being held, J.J. Arms flew to Mexico, where he supposedly spent five days and five nights wandering the Mexican desert in search for the kidnappers. He also, like, in interviews, whenever he talks about it, he's always like, I didn't eat anything for five days. All I did was I had a uh, high chew or double mint or some shit where I just, I just chewed chew? gum. And I love, I love that. I love if it was high chew. 
I don't think it was Haichu, but he 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 always says in the interview the name of the name brand, and I cracked up every time he said it because it's just so ridiculous. Uh, yeah, because he yeah he went down there, he he rescued his son and flew him back to the states. Um, also, or brought him back to the states, depending on which of the stories you believe. Some good um, that did because he ended up like murdering somebody later on. Oh really? Oof. Yeah. I don't know any. I don't know anything about Christian Brando. Yeah, he like he like murdered somebody. Oof, that's dark. If you believe J.J. Arms and his account, he descended upon the camp to save Christian Brando and escaped amid a flurry of automatic gunfire. This heroic schism underscoring the event cannot be verified, however, even though Christian Brando was returned safe and sound to the United States. Based off of his flair for theatricality and lack of camera shyness, J.J. Arms began to amass quite a fortune for himself taking on very high-profile jobs and working nearly every type of investigative work. Throughout the 60s, his fame, or infamy, grew until he became something of a sideshow oddity on late-night news programs. He appeared on Goodnight America with Geraldo Rivera, where they had a protracted hour-long interview, which commences with J.J. Arms giving a demonstration of how his prosthetic hands secretly house a hidden pistol inside of them that he can secretly fire via an internal mechanism. This obviously was very unnerving for Geraldo, who jokes that he's glad they weren't real bullets inside the gun. That interview is so trippy because Geraldo literally seems like he's like freaked out that this guy's going to accidentally murder him. And J.J. Arms I is I would like, be too! It's not even just a guy having a gun. It's a guy having a shoddily built experimental device that is the one of a kind and in an in another article where he's talking about it he says that he can fire it with his mind and it's like <laughs> I know, and, dude. I know, and it's dude. like i would not trust a fucking hook hand mind gun like get <laughs> point that shit away from me although hook hand mind gun is a good title for a dead boy detectives record oh yeah um so at this point J.J. or I almost said J.J. Abrams. <laughs> that's so the twist. The, this is J.J. Yeah, yeah. Abrams. Yeah, yeah. That's he did all of twist. this, and then he wrote Gone Fishing, and then he burned it all down. And yeah, the next time we heard of him, he was he was uh, directing Star Wars. Yes, that was the, that was the next time we heard of him. At this point, J.J. Arms has a lavish compound and a helicopter pad that he's personally constructed in El Paso, Texas. He has a steady clientele of celebrities paying him to do work, and he's something of a minor celebrity of himself. In 1973, on September 11th, J.J. Arms plays a villain in an episode of Hawaii Five-0 called The Hookman. Bro. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. Dr. Peter Willer here. I'm direct. <laughs> so if you're unfamiliar, the joke that Andrew is doing, which is an inside bit that we've had for years, which doesn't make any sense out of context... <laughs> Peter Weller, the actor who played Buckaroo Banzai, one of my favorite movies, and as Robocop, well, uh, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I was going to say, like, just say Robocop. Like, that, that's like burying the lead a little bit. I mean, to me, he's Buckaroo Banzai and then Robocop, Alex Murphy. But on No, but Cameo, I'm just, yes. I mean, on, come on. on I mean, Cameo, if we're going to go real deep, William on, S. Burroughs and Naked Lunch. <laughs> yes. On, on Cameo... Whenever he gets hired to do shout-outs for people, he always says, Dr. Peter Weller here, because after after his acting career kind of dried up in the uh, in the 90s, he went back to school and became 
a an art historian specializing in uh, Roman antiquity. And so he's very, very insecure about the fact that anybody would only think of him as a has-been that used to be Robocop or Buckaroo Banzai. So he needs to make sure that you know he's a director and that he's an actor and that he's a doctor. And he his cameos are wild. They're they're fucking unreal. Like he's always he always does them in hotel rooms and he always lists what he's working on. So he they always start out with Dr. Peter Weller here, star of Robocop and Buckaroo Banzai. I'm in Honolulu directing Hawaii Five O. And So it's, anyway, happy birthday, Candace. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. But the craziest part of this all is Andrew and I both love Peter Weller, but he played J.J. Arms's Hookman character in a re in a remake of this episode that they did for the new Hawaii Five O remake show, which is just so unreal. It's so crazy. Yeah, I, there's nothing to say yeah, except you this is great. You this can't. Is great. You can't make it up. You can't make it up. Also, uh, I had a thought about that. I had a thought about this. So he, you know, he wanted to go and he wanted to, he wanted to become a, an actor. And he also wanted to take his handicap and turn it into a tool rather than a something holding him back. Uh, and we've talked about people like that in the past and, you know, on and off the podcast. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of actors who basically uh, use their physical handicaps to their advantage to become a certain to become a certain type of in-demand physical uh, presence for certain types of roles in movies. We talked about it on the Evil Within, Michael Berryman, and and some of those some of those actors like that. Uh, I forget we've talked if we've talked about this on the podcast, but we've definitely talked about it off the podcast. Uh, Robert Zadar uh, u- utilizing his cherubism to basically become like the go-to person if you wanted to, somebody to in your movie to be just very like physically like off-putting and kind of like just immediately strike this like odd uncanny physical presence that you know that you can utilize for you know bad guys in movies and 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 toughs and things like that yeah Uh, rubber zadar was an actor in the 80s who was in maniac cop and a bunch of other really great kind of schlocky b movies who had a disease called cherubism where his body thought that his jaw was deficient in calcium so as he aged his face physically got longer because his body was packing calcium onto the onto his his jawline, and he um, had a, a very specific, bizarre by traditional beauty standards, bizarre uh, facial kind of amorphous that happened over his life, and also the fact that he was an alcoholic and you know low key, you know did steroids a lot, also fucked with all of that shit. Yeah, um, but I love I love Robert Zadar. I'm sure we'll do an episode on him. Yeah, um, so there's a lot there's a there's a lineage of of people who've sort of done that. Um, Rondo Rondo Hatton is another one. Yeah, who's the kind of proto Robert Zadar from the 30s. And I I think I think with J.J. Arms, I think the the issue or the thing that I think the reason why that didn't quite work out for him is the same reason why the one thing he was in is literally called Hookman is because I just don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sound disrespectful of amputees or whatever, but I don't know if in terms of like playing one of these like 
tertiary like side character people uh, like people in movies that a lot of these types of people tend to you know find work with i just don't know if like having hooks for hands was like super versatile in terms of like i just i don't know if there was a lot of work for that specific thing whereas you know like robert zadar there's there's so many applications of that like it's just any anything he's just he's such a striking looking person that it's just like yeah put that guy in my movie whereas like a guy who's probably just kind of like an asshole personally so you probably just not super i think that's the that's the real that's the real message here is it's less it's less his hands not being there and more jj arms doesn't seem like the type of guy that you want to hang out with more than a couple hours because Mm -hmm. his bullshit probably drives you crazy Mm -hmm. um but in the 70s it didn't drive people crazy it was really successful everybody full-on believed this dude um and after the episode where he's the villain in this episode of Hawaii Five-0 airs, he starts to get a little heat. Um, and our theatrical detective has finally gotten his big break on the silver screen. However, that's not enough because J.J. Arms is about to parlay this into his own toy line. In 1976, the Ideal Toy Corporation launched a J.J. Arms toy line, which featured J.J. Arms and it had a sister toy line for... Evil Knievel. And basically the the toys are just like, you know, they're G.I. Joes that have, you know, weird 70s suits like J.J. Arms had with and then he comes with a bunch of different accessories where you can put different gadgets on his arms. You know, so there's the hook hands, there's a gun hand, there's a, uh, you know, a bomb hand, you know, a a boxing glove hand. There's all these magnifying glass hand and. These things were, you know, fairly successful in the 70s. Um, and all of this kind of was supposed to crescendo, you know, the between the Hookman episode of Hawaii Five-0, this toy line, and also him meeting a producer in the mid-70s who had an idea to do a made-for-TV movie called The Investigator, which would have then worked as a backdoor pilot which was a fairly common thing that they were that they were doing in the 70s like Colchak the Night Stalker started that way yeah um where you do a movie and then if it's successful enough then you order a full season and that way you get a pilot but it also gets shown and you don't have to just make a pilot and sit on it um this is that's the same business model that um what's his face Gene Roddenberry used in the 70s and the 80s after his Star Trek show you know got canceled after the third season he made three other shows Spectre which is basically like a proto uh, X-Files paranormal investigator show which is fucking awesome and John Hurt plays a lizard demon god you should definitely watch it uh, it's on YouTube um, I mean watch watch, watch Kolchak as well that show's yeah, fucking yeah yeah Kolchak Night fucking, great. fucking rules yeah um uh earth 2000 ad and another one which i don't remember uh that's kind of like a reboot of earth 2000 ad oh and uh the data show he had a show about a guy quest it was called the questor tapes which is oh yeah the yeah the there's like a there's like a pilot of that right yes and uh it that show is the show that ruined his relationship with leonard nimoy because the, the basically the show is it's data the tv show where it's about a robot who's trying to find his Matt, uh, the person who created him and you know get answers to why he exists and um you know it's kind of a you know kane and kung fu or incredible hulk style situation where questor is wandering from from town to town trying to find his 
you know, maker and getting involved in these little adventures or whatever. And Gene Roddenberry had uh... promised he had promised the role of Questor to Leonard Nimoy, and then the studio ABC or whoever, whatever the network was, they didn't want him to be Questor, and it like completely fucked their relationship. Yeah, a character in Deadbolt is is uh, inspired by Questor. Oh yeah, you're yeah. what? What is what is Deadbolt? Uh, Deadbolt is a is a comic that I did. Um, well, it's I did a comic that was like the first volume of a overarching fuck you, story. Fuck you. That was awful. Uh, what is what is what is uh what's Deadbolt? Deadbolt is a uh future science fiction robot noir comic about a robot detective named Deadbolt solving crimes in a uh in a Aldous Huxley-esque future bureaucratic dystopia. Um and, and you wrote it and who illustrated it? Guillermo Villarreal illustrated it. Sick. uh tobin rassicott uh lettered it and where can, and, where can the people find this thing on the internets bro <laughs> dapricewrites.com but there's a character in in deadbolt which in the in the first book that you've read his character is very much on the sidelines and you don't get any sense of this at all but he's this character named spool who's one of the detectives on the like state-run police department that has run-ins with deadbolt and they clearly they clearly work together in the past and hate each other and he's different than other robots other robots are dictated by artificial intelligence there are these certain types of robots that were built to circumvent the human rights laws that were given to ai controlled robots basically whenever robots were given human rights people could no longer use robots for labor all form of machine production was illegalized and basically turned into like the equivalent of like human trafficking so somebody invented something called a liar and a liar is not controlled by artificial intelligence there is a precog that simulates the entire lifetime of a robot and then records that entire simulated lifetime onto a spool of tape and then the spool of tape is put into the robot and then the robot basically is just it's not alive at all it's just living off of this tape that has simulated what the what its lifetime would be if it was alive in the world so it's just it's just uh, reacting to a series of recorded um, of commands and, and events uh, and, and interacting with the world to like some infinitesimal degree of accuracy with how the real world actually will play out. They invented this and they were trying to do it and then it became impractical so they closed the program down and he's the last remaining liar and he also was able to break his programming where he can actually fast forward the tape and rewind the tape which you're not supposed to be able to do. So he can actually look into the future by fast forwarding his tape. And then he can bring things from the future. He can put them into a chamber in his body that is time isolated and he can bring them back from the future. But he can't remember what he saw in the future because his tape is just linear. He doesn't have memory of what he saw in the future because he's back in the past. His, his tape has rewound. So all he can go off of is the clues that he's picked up while he was in the future. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to stop right there and say, this is 10 times more interesting than the quest door shape tapes. <laughs> but it was, I, I, we, I'm probably going to cut out most of that, but it was, I, lo I, I love that. I it think was, that's really cool. It was inspired by, by that. I don't know if I saw the full pilot, but I did see, I remember watching like 
18 some 18 minute version of it i don't know if that was just like a highlight reel or something yeah that's not the full um, thing the full thing is like a, an hour yeah i think i watched like a highlight reel on youtube years ago um and i just love the idea of like uh like like a robot's memories like being on a spool of tape um i don't fucking remember where we were <laughs> um yeah basically the, the toy line is basically just you know it's shitty gi joe but jj arms themed um, and it was supposed to crescendo with this investigators movie and then launch into a TV show. And, you know, JJ Arms is set up to be a household name now. It's, you know, 1978 and he's just fucking kicking on all cylinders. Unfortunately, though, the producer that was behind this project died. So the TV show and the made for TV movie never happened. But the toy line did. And off the strength of the toy line, that same year, JJ Arms published his autobiography titled. J.J. Arms Investigator, uh, J.J. Arms Investigator, uh, the world's most successful private eye. The writing credits on the book uh, are listed as J.J. Arms as told to Frederick Nolan. And the book was published by Macmillan on January 1st, 1976, with an approximate page count of 234 pages, which I'm going to go on a limb and say that J.J. Arms did not type a single word in that. The, uh, the I mean, I've, I to me, that it's a given. Um I didn't even think that's like a thing to speculate to, to me. It's like reading this and I've read other, other examples of things like this. I can't think of anything on top off. The, like I can't think of a specific story at the top of my head, but I feel like I've read things like this in the past, the pure audacity of a person to work with an author. Cause you know, tons of people, hundreds of, you know, thousands of people, celebrities and political figures and whatever, uh, public figures of some form, uh, they work with authors to write their books for them because they're not writers. So, you know, when you see it, when you go into a Barnes and Noble and you see uh, Licking It Up, the Gene Simmons story <laughs> by Gene Simmons and Arthur Rogens or whatever. It's like Arthur Rogens wrote the book and like Gene Simmons was just there being like, yeah. And then I, uh, I just, I got, I got crabs yeah and then uh, i licked it some more yeah. uh and, and you know it's just it's 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 a thinly veiled way of saying like oh uh this celebrity just kind of like ranted i mean the, the whole movie ghost writer is just yep. that process yeah um yeah. or a season three of uh house of cards or four yeah. season four whatever the season is with the ghost writer um but you know the the proper thing to do is acknowledge that this writer wrote the book but I feel like I've seen a couple other examples of this before. And this is another one where it's like he's trying to like pretend like he was more involved with writing it than he was. And it's just it just seems like such an asshole thing to do to just like strip authorship away from the person who wrote actually wrote the book. You didn't write it and you're pretending like you did. Yeah. Uh, can we just talk about the fact that like regardless of what you think about him, regardless of him as a person, regardless of the details and the truth around much of his life, how ahead of its time it was to have this toy line of a of a uh, a physically handicapped person um, where not only was their physical handicapped based on a real person, uh, it was, and not only was it, uh, you know, uh, not 
explained away in some kind of dumb way. Uh, but also it was used as like a superpower because it was like, you know, you took off the hooks and then you could put a magnifying glass there. You could put a gun there or whatever. So, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't exploitative in, in, in the way, in the way it might be if it was a fictional character. Um, and also it was played off as like a superpower and, you know, in the last couple years, I feel like pop culture has really started to uh, incorporate. I mean, obviously, in the last, you know, whatever, in the last 10 years, especially in the last five years, uh, we, you know, we've really made a big push for diversity, uh, higher diversity in uh, pop culture representation, whether that's movies or whatever. Um, and, uh, a big part of what that usually means is just, you know, more than just white people in things and, you know, women that are more than just side like love interest characters. Uh, but I feel like really in the last couple years has been a big push into incorporating uh, physically and mentally handicapped people into popular culture. And, you know, as a as a random example of like a really recent thing. Um, not that this is a shining example of this or anything like that, but, you know, in the in the new Pixar movie um, Onward, uh, there are some characters that are like friends of the main character that he goes to school with. Uh, like there's a random character that he goes to high school with who just, uh, you know, he walks with um, he walks with the, with crutches and he he has some kind of like cerebral palsy or something like that. Um, and it's not, it's, it's completely side. It's a, he's like a side character. It's never, it's never even, it's never even acknowledged. He just is a character in the movie who happens to have uh, cerebral palsy and he's just in the movie and he talks to the character and it's just there. Uh, and I feel like in the last couple of years has been a bigger push into incorporating those things. But back then, like it's insane uh, and, and, and it wasn't even some crazy example of like some toy manufacturers push for, um, inclusion. Uh, it was just this weird, bizarre circumstance where JJ arms was this raconteur who somehow stumbled his way into getting a toy line made of him and accidentally made this incredibly revolutionary move of having a, uh, toy line that, centers around a physically handicapped person in a way that's not exploitative and features the handicap as a superhero as a superpower it's crazy what whatever any other no matter what any of the other details about this story is that alone is nuts and it's like crazy that like not only do no, does nobody know who jj arms is uh nobody this isn't a person who's in the cultural zeitgeist in the same way that like whatever, even, even Robert Zadar, like, I mean, that's still really obscure, but a lot of people know who Robert Zadar is. Um, whereas like JJ arms is like, nobody knows who the fuck JJ arms is. And nobody has any memory of the fact that there was just a toy line in the seventies featuring a man with hooks for hands. Uh, and it's crazy. That's not talked about more because it was, it was insane that that happened. I mean, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Good.
Act 2. It's definitely not a wig. So just to recap, JJ JJ Arms lost his JJ Arms. JJ Armsman uh lost his arms when he was 18 or uh, 11, sorry. He lost his arms when he was 11. Decides he wants to be an actor, fails, moves back to El Paso, finds that he has a knack for being a private investigator. Then also, also he was he was approached while he was in in Hollywood. He was in pro, he was approached by somebody who was like, "I love your arms. You want to be in this movie?" And then the movie was called "Am I Handicapped?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so he's he. He's in these movies. He moves back to El Paso, becomes a private investigator, starts working for the rich and the famous, makes a shitload of money, buys a fucking zoo, lives in the zoo as his compound with a helicopter pad. He went um, full Ewan McGregor. Full Ewan McGregor. We bought a zoo. Uh, he. Uh, it took me a second to realize that you were referencing the movie because I thought Matt Damon was in that movie. Um, Maybe he is. I don't know. I never saw it. I think Matt Damon's in the movie, but it doesn't matter. Uh, so he becomes rich and famous, kind of a curious character, D-list celebrity, gets this toy line, this autobiography. It's, you know, it's the 70s are coming to an end. He was hoping that he was going to have this TV show. doesn't really work out. And then he kind of, from that point until today, has just been steadily touring and working off of this idea that he's a international man of mystery, James Bond-esque guy. He walks around with a bodyguard constantly. Um, he says that there have been six attempts on his life because people have it out for him because he's brought their friends or associates to justice. He no, he says he says he has he's had fourteen attempts on his life. Oh, we're my bad, my bad, my bad. Fourteen. Six was the times that he's been nearly fatally wounded in battle. Right, 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 right. Um, and you know he kind of he gains this kind of like you know, uh, D-list celebrity status as this curious figure in American culture. The only the only problem of everything that we've been discussing is the fact that J.J. Arms is a complete and utter fucking liar. Yep. Like, 100% piece of shit liar. A liar to the heights. I mean, let's rank them. Let's rank. <laughs> I, you, you, I know you want to rank stuff. Um... Let's 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 put these let's put these liars uh, against a wall and rank them. So we got we got Sophia Stewart, we got uh, we've got um, which I don't know if that's completely fair because she's obviously so mentally ill. Like she is a liar, but she also is empirically yeah, mentally yeah, it's, ill. It's yeah, it's 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 not the same situation, I guess. Yeah. Um. So Tom Hansen, Tom definitely, Hansen, def- definitely name? a liar. Um, yes. and then Edward Stratemeyer. Ed- Edward Stratemeyer was the next one. I mean, for me, Tom Hansen is kind of a fun, shitty uncle who like ex- exaggerates his war stories. It doesn't hurt anybody really. It kind of could get out of control, but it didn't. So yeah, fairly harmless. I agree. Uh, uh, then for me, Sophia Stewart, very annoying. Obviously a liar. Bizarre that people believe her, but also she's mentally ill, so her culpability is a little bit less. And then in a in a stratosphere all his own, in a uh, in a palatial mansion made of untruths and tiger and, meat. And tiger meat is our boy JJ Arms. Because we also haven't talked about the fact that he 
in his private zoo that he lives in, he has a fucking pet tiger and a 53-year-old chimpanzee named Gypsy. I... That he feeds gum. Yeah, he feeds he feeds the the he he'll he bribes the the chimpanzee gum for kisses. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even joking. That's, no, that's I know. True. It's just that's I I know it's true, and I'm not really even laughing at the idea of a man kissing a chimpanzee, but just that whole string of statements. It's the craziest thing you could say. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing that's so interesting about his specific version of lying is that he is lying, but also there is truth in there because he has done some of these things and he's spent money propping up the facade of these truths. Like, he does own a fucking tiger. He does have a mansion that has a yeah, I mean, the, that's kind of that was kind of my point I was trying to get to of like ranking them because it's like Tom Hansen, um, he he he's clearly lying about a lot of stuff, but like it's kind of obvious that he's lying. His his stories seem like exaggerated like sea stories from some just crazy dude who is just lost in his own memories. Yeah. Um. And there's just really nothing to really corroborate anything that he says. Um, the closest thing to the the only the only thing we really know about him is that he he did make the movie and he did have these screenings where he had this stunt that was allegedly supposed to be catching the Zodiac killer, but it you know it could have just been like a promotional gag that was no better planned out than any other type of promotional gag that exists for movies. Uh, so ultimately at the end of the day, it's just a guy like, you know, maybe he's telling the truth about certain things. Maybe he's lying about all of it. Maybe he's telling the truth about all of it, but ultimately there's nothing really to prove it either way. And also who kind of cares, but, uh, but, but JJ arms by the, by the firsthand accounts of many, many people and also your own common sense of reading these stories. It's like, this dude is lying, but also He's got to be telling the truth about something or there's not not he's got not that he has to be telling the truth about something, but something has to be going on. He's not just a flim flam artist like Tom Hansen, who's just making up stories. Something has to be happening. It's not like he physically he physically does have a helicopter pad. He physically does have a tiger like there are. It's not what he's saying, but something is going on because he genuinely does live on a compound that has a fucking. 22 different exotic animals living on it and he does have this crazy tricked out limousine that he drives around that has like a camera in the back so he can like film people as he's following them or driving in front of them or something however that works he does like he like he is actually an eccentric rich person and and basically this the, the interesting thing around the kind of kayfabe around him, the the, sh- the mystery that's shrouded, is that certain aspects of it are just, like, freely available, but people don't look into it enough to really understand what is true and what isn't, and then other aspects are just, even now, still not known. So basically, the, the way that he kind of got exposed for being a fucking liar is at the height of his popularity in 1976, he was running for the whatever the county is in Texas where El Paso is, he was running for the sheriff, which is an elected position, which I didn't know until doing this. I was like, oh, apparently you get elected as sheriff. I don't know anything about being a sheriff. And so he he was running for sheriff, 
And so because of that, he was trying to drum up publicity everywhere. He was tr- trying to get on 60 Minutes. He was trying to get on on ABC and NBC and all these like news programs. And this, um, this Canadian uh, film crew came down to film him for an expose about what a weird guy he is. And oh, yeah, by the way, he's running for sheriff and what a weird guy he is. And in that kind of gaggle of reporters, this guy named Gary Cartwright, who was a reporter for the Texas Monthly, wrote a 20,000-word, I mean, it, it's huge, uh, giant expose about J.J. Arms and about the kind of behind-the-scenes of his life. And in 1976, nobody even knew that his name wasn't J.J. Arms. They thought that was his actual name. Um, obviously, his his real name is Julian Armas. It's so fascinating to read Gary Cartwright's essay about Julian, Julian Armas because... He breaks it down as like somebody who fully believes it and then kind of feels like something's not right and then digs deeper and then unravels the truth of what really happened. And yeah, he invited the wrong journalist. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this dude gets into it. Yeah. He invited a bunch of weird like public access Canadian fucking dudes who just didn't give a fuck either way and were just there to do their job. And if he had just stopped there. But he he hired this he hired the fucking Columbo of Texas. Yeah. Or not hired, but he brought he he invited over the Columbo of Texas to interview him. I mean, yeah, I I mean I highly recommend reading the article. It's it's fucking great. And you can find it on online. Uh you can just go I mean that you can search is JJ Arms for real and you'll find it. That's the like the title of the piece is Is JJ Arm is this JJ Arms guy for real? And in the piece, he kind of walks through the various things that J.J. Arms sets up as truths and then knocks them over one by one in very in very well-written and very entertaining way. Um, and one of the things he talks about is, which I feel like is, is a, a perfect synecdoche for who J.J. Arms is and how this work just comes together completely, is in... So J.J. Arms runs a company called The Investigators, which is a investigative body that purports to have over 600 agents in um the u.s or four four thousand agents in the u.s and 600 in el paso alone and they go to the office this canadian film crew gary cartwright and a couple other reporters and they're talking and whatever and there's a couple paintings on the walls and one the the secretary says oh yeah jj arms painted those and one of them is a big mural of jj arms with hands and blue eyes. JJ Arms is a is a, a Mexican dude from El Paso. He does not have blue eyes. He does not have blue eyes. Like he just doesn't. Yeah. He also does not have hands. And there's something so mesmerizing to me about the you know, this is a common theme of people we've been talking about. This 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 ability to will oneself into the world that you want to be, this kind of chaos magic of the self. And for Julian Armas, a.k.a. J.J. Arms, to hire somebody else to paint a portrait of him and then claim that he painted it and then make that guy paint him with blue eyes and hands is just so amazing. It's ex- it's 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 so great. It's it's uh, it, it's it's unreal. The level of chutzpah that it takes to do that. Like, I just yeah. I love it. And also, I think you maybe you say this later on, but you, you say he. You say he was the 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 Tiger King of the seventies, and that's another thing is that that was the whole thing about the about uh, Joe Exotic was that he had those songs 
that he were like, I wrote and performed these songs and he has music videos or whatever. But then come to find out, he just hired somebody else to write the songs for him and sing them. He's not singing. He didn't write them. He just lip synced to them for a music video. It's great. It's great. Like, and it's very similar too, because it's like the songs are about like loving tigers or whatever. So he basically was like, I have this passion for this thing. So, Hey, you write this song and like tap into my passion for tigers so it's like this weird thing where it's like somebody else is like ghostwriting from your perspective, trying to tap into your passion for something that you aren't skilled enough to do yourself. So, so you bizarre. Mean, so you mean the last five years of Drake's career? Oh, jeez. Oh, oh. oh, I don't give a shit. I still that like was, that music. Who gives a fuck was, who wrote it? It's great. Felt- that felt like uh, that felt like taking a taking a flak jacket off, just <laughs> relieving to get that out there. Ah oh, man, um, I love I love you, Champagne Poppy. Come on the podcast. I don't give a fuck. Yes, please. Um, but it's the, but it's but it's so interesting to me though that like he you know JJ Arms also claims that he went to UCLA and NYU and detective school. He also claims that he. You know, the, the, his, you know, the, the investigator's mansion or whatever, his home is on a 60 acres uh, plot of land. And he he owns the house, but it's not on a 60 acre plot of land. It's on a one acre plot of land. And that's like that's the perfect like that's that's how you have to think about J.J. Arms is everything. There's like it's like one sixtieth of it is true. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I, I, I had the exact same thought. Everything that he says the real thing is like 10% of it. He just like, he literally just like his version of lying is like, is like multiplying the thing by like five. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it, you know, Gary Cartwright even went so far as to like look into like the tax records and the, um, the, the, the real estate taxes and to try and figure out like, you know, J.J. Arms basically says that it's a, you know, multi-million dollar estate. And actually, ironically, currently, right now in 2020, I think the J.J. Arms estate is up for sale. I think he's trying to get $2 million for it right now. Oh, yeah, 100%. And you know what? He is, he's, he is, well, yeah, he is selling it. And do you want to go live on J.J. Arms' estate? I mean, just bro, throw Just I, I, throw I, I, it all away and just go out there and live like two eccentric detectives? I mean, is that really all that different from our normal friendship? <laughs> no, but then we have a tiger. Oh, right. And and a very problematically named chimpanzee that's 53 years old. Yes. And then maybe like multiple jaguars. <laughs> I love this guy, man. But basically, Gary Cartwright finds out that um, he he basically finds records that say that J.J. Arms paid $50,000 for the property and that in 1972... He paid four hundred and seventy six dollars in property taxes, which is like obviously not a multimillion dollar estate. And like well, yeah, it, I mean, that's that's the same like multiplying by five thing where it's like, you know, and it's also like you tell a lie that people just won't notice. Like if you if you say that 
like people a lot of people don't have like a real scope for what an acre is or whatever it's kind of like that whole thing that joke that they make that like meta self-aware joke that they make in movies a lot where it's like the the suitcase has four million dollars in it and then they open it up and like it's a suitcase but like only like half of it is filled or whatever and they're like huh i thought it would i thought it would look like more and they're like yeah no actually this is this is four million like it's not it's not as much as they it looks like in movies like if you went to somebody's house and they told you it was 60 acres and it was just one acre you'd probably just be like oh i guess this is what 60 acres looks like and and then the same thing with that of like yeah i paid i paid two million dollars for this and you're just like yeah this seems like it could be worth $2 million. But in reality, it's like, like I said earlier, El Paso is a shithole. Like the real estate isn't that expensive there. Like there's, there's, there's no fucking $2 million fucking houses in El Paso, Texas, especially back then, even now, like there's $2 million fucking houses here in LA. There's no, there's no $2 million house in El Paso. And I think that, you know, he, JJ Arms gets asked in interviews a lot, why are you working in El Paso? Why aren't you in LA? Why aren't you in New York? Why did you come back to El Paso? And he has this line that he says over and over again, which is a biblical quote about how, you know, uh, no prophet returns to their hometown, basically meaning the people that witness you aging and making mistakes and growing up they have too much context to be able to hear the truth of what you're saying um, of this divine inspiration that you've accrued in some way. And you need to, in some ways, you, the only people that can view you as an authority are people that are divorced of context for your life because they can see you as something that is worthy of exaltation. And he says that quote a lot in interviews and it's, he says it in the reverse where he's like, you know, the, there's a Bible quote that you know, prophets don't return home. Well, I wanted to prove everybody wrong and I wanted to go home and prove that I am the world's most fabulous international man of mystery to the people who made fun of me in high school. Ostensibly, that's like the emotional kernel of what he's trying to convey. The that's, issue just, being, I, that's like his whole life. Yep. Like his whole his whole life is is driven by the simplistic singular goal of just impressing the people that he grew up with like there's a whole there's a whole quote about how there's a whole story somebody told about how he was like at the hospital with his daughter she was like sick or something and like in the er just surrounded by staff personnel the doctors and stuff like that he's like loudly comforting her and being like it's okay baby uh, we'll watch the TV that we have in our car when we're driving home. Like he's just loudly saying this, like comforting her and being like, we'll we'll watch TV in our car because there's a TV in our car. We own a car that has a television in it. Like and he's clearly doing it for the benefit of people around him because he just wants people to hear that he has a TV in his car. It's and and there's so many stories like that. Like the Gary he's like Cartwright Mr. article. He's like Mr. Like Dink the- from Doug. Like. <laughs> Hello, Douglas. Have you seen my ride-along helicopter lawnmower? Very expensive. Also, I thought you weren't going to do impersonations anymore. Oh, shit. It's so I only do them when they're fucking spot on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so sad to me, though, on one level. Like, it's just so... Like, you can tell this person just is 
so tormented with a lack of self-worth and it's it i just have such an immense sense of empathy and and like i just want to comfort this person because they just seem like their entire existence nothing has ever been able to quiet their soul and that is that's so depressing that this person is now 80 years old still doing this he's still in character like he did a he did like an el paso um public access tv show from like last year where he he's still doing it he was on he like the the vice sent a bunch of interviewers to his to his estate to interview him a couple years ago like in 2016 or something well and one like come on vice you should know better than this like Start with the crazy, he's the world's most famous detective with no hands, and then go, oh, yeah, he's also a fucking liar. This is crazy. Like, what are you guys doing? This is so, it's so easy to find that he's obviously a charlatan. And, like, in the Gary Cartwright article, they, he details how, you know, this, the, the, the NYU professor who, um, shaped young J.J. Arms's life and really helped get him off the streets and helped him go to NYU and helped develop him as a person and really help him become the J.J. Arms of myth, this this doctor character that, that he becomes friends with. Um, it's just not real. J.J. JJ, JJ Arms made this guy up. NYU has no record of him. There's no birth records of anyone with this name. Like, same thing for all of the UCLA. He was never involved at UCLA, never attended UCLA, never even looked at UCLA. Like, who knows if he's even been to UCLA campus. Yeah, and- also, what I said earlier, purposely planting the seed, uh, the whole thing about how he was approached by somebody when he was in Hollywood who like said that they liked his look and they liked his hands and then they put him in a movie called Am I Handicapped? That movie doesn't exist. Does not exist, period. The, and the, 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 the weirdest part of all of this is that J.J. Arms names his kid J.J. Arms as well. But J.J. Arms, for certain periods of time, goes by J.J. Arms Jr. and he pretends that his father is named J.J. Arms Sr., which he is not. So his son alternates between using J.J. Arms II and J.J. Arms III in his name. So there's all these videos of J.J. Arms II, I guess, doing infomercials on YouTube about his businesses. J.J. Arms' son is also a fucking charlatan and a, in air quotes, private investigator. And he runs a bunch of online shops where he sells people mic packs and listening devices and flashlights that have satellite links and whatever i don't fucking know spy shit right yeah he, i mean and he's like, the he's the equivalent of like of like um what's that guy's name uh the oxyclean guy yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, like for for like for like bullshit spy gear it's so weird though that like it's so interesting that, you know, you you as a person obviously have this deep-seated trauma that then manifests in this persona, which, you know, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, the persona maybe started as a self-defense mechanism and had a good purpose. You know, I'm going to change the world and make things better and help people. And then it spiraled out of control. You know, you tell one lie and then you tell 10 lies and you tell 500 lies. And next thing you know, you're saying that you flew to fucking Mexico and saved Christian Brando, where the truth is probably they knew where Christian Brando was and it was a dangerous area and they didn't want to send somebody that knew better in there. So JJ Arms volunteered to go across the border 
collect Christian Brando and chaperone him back to the U.S.? Well, yeah, I mean, the 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 journalist, uh, he basically had talked to some other private investigators, uh, some like, quote unquote, real ones, even though they all seem kind of like characters in their own rights. They all basically said, like, at this time, at this period in history, the government and the cartels were in, in Mexico were so intermingled that, like, everybody knew what was going on everywhere. So all you had to do was just have enough money to pay a member of the Mexican government uh, or the Mexican police force, just pay them and be like, where's Christian Brando? And then they would just tell you. And then if you pay some more money, they would like basically go and extradite him. And if you paid some more money, they would help you bring him across the border. So all that he really did, all that all that JJ Arms really actually did was just pay some member of the Mexican government an exorbitant amount of money to which he got from Marlon Brando to just br- like do the do the job for him basically. And so he probably he probably made no money on that deal, but he got a great piece of like lore lore yeah. about himself out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I'm sure that everybody listening to this is thinking like, well, he's obviously, you know, successful enough that he's got this compound and, you know, he's got a helicopter and a he's got a limousine with a TV in it. Like he he was successful. Like he did he made money. Yes, but also the two key ways that JJ Arms, according to Gary Cartwright, got money are is one he had a lawsuit against a Juarez radio station that settled out of court for purportedly around $80,000. The other way that he made money is that he became friends with this guy named Thomas Fortune Ryan, which is an amazing name as well, almost as good as Dick Cable's. Thomas Fortune Ryan was a reclusive real estate mogul. All of these people are just shitty Silver Age uh side characters or you know what they feel like they feel like first draft coen brothers characters yeah like you know that they're changing some of those and toning them down but for the sake of moving on joel cohen is like eh fuck it thomas fortune ryan that way i'll remember he's the rich guy when i'm working on this script yeah so thomas fortune ryan is a reclusive real estate mogul who befriends jj arms somehow we don't know how and for some reason he decides to cut jj arms in on all of his real estate transactions for like a fucking long time. So basically every time this guy does something real estate wise, buys property, sells property, whatever, JJ Arms is his go-to support structure and I guess real estate agent or bodyguard. I don't I don't I guarantee you that he promised him like if you ever are in like legal trouble or if anything, if any shit's ever going down, if you ever need to find out any dirt on any of your competitors or whatever, like I will give you like free like services. I guarantee you that that was the deal was that he just promised them that this blank check of just this of abstract bullshit that he could never deliver on. And that yeah. was why he was cutting him in. And the guy yeah. probably after several years, much in the same way that sometimes a company will hire somebody based on some snake oil bullshit and even though they never actually deliver on anything they're really good at making up excuses they're really good at dragging things out they're really good at making it seem like they're on the verge of something to where somebody can get hired 
never show any results and stay with at a company for years before the people finally are like, yeah, this this guy didn't has not done anything for us. And then he finally gets fired. Like, I'm sure it was something like that, where this guy finally after years was like, he's never done a single thing for me in return for this. Yeah. And so basically off of that real estate money and this lawsuit settlement, he has enough money due to how cheap cost of living is in El Paso to set up the foundation of what we're talking about. This, you know, you spend $10 on a plastic gun and then you tell people that it's a really, you know, expensive submachine gun, which is almost literally what he did. His bodyguard that follows him around with a submachine gun, that submachine gun isn't actually a real gun. He he took a an existing gun and then like added plastic shit to it to make it look like a silencer and like a fucking like mean ass machine gun. So like anybody who knows anything about guns is just gonna be like, this guy's a fucking moron, but it fools 99 people out of a hundred. Like I wouldn't know the difference. If there was yeah. some big motherfucker with a, you know, gun looking thing with a giant silencer cone. I'd be like, ah, fuck it. Yeah. Whatever you say, sir. I wouldn't know. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he like, and there, there's some stories from his childhood, uh, which also, you know, there, there's no, there's no reason why these are any more true than anything else. But, you know, some stories about his childhood of how, like, he, when he was real young, he ran like a fucking, uh, he would, like, loan out money to school kids. He would, like, set up a stand across the street from his school, and he would loan you a quarter, and then, like, you had to pay him back 50 cents later. So, you know, with all of this stuff, with those stories, however true they are, like, you know, this dude wasn't some brilliant fucking private investigator. He wasn't some action hero. He was just, he was, he was a, he was just a fucking classic grifter. He's just, he's a grifter like that. Every, and he just, this is his grift that he chose. He's just. His person, his, his, yeah. his the, the character that he's created, the, you know, the gimmick is I'm a private investigator and, you know, he plays the part. He walks around with the, you know, the black duster and the white tie and the, the aviator glasses. And even now at, you know, 81 years old or 83, however the fuck old he is, he still has jet black curly hair. It's definitely not a wig. That's his real hair, Andrew. That's his real fucking hair. It is. I love it so much. It's so fucking ridiculous. Um, I wouldn't even be surprised if you fucking the day he dies. They do the autopsy and there's just like they 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 open. They take his shirt off and it's just hands holding hooks. <laughs> I, I love that idea, but they're tiny hands. They're little. They're little yeah. like me, 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 me. Yes. Yeah. The one thing I want to talk about really briefly about J.J. Arms Jr. slash J.J. Arms the third, depending on what day you talk to him is I I just love how shysty this guy is. Um, just the he, sad grifter version of James Bond Jr. Yeah, it's like he, he's like a, it's the weird Xerox thing where it's like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. And it just, it's like this pale facsimile of something that's crazy and interesting and idiosyncratic and flamboyant. And now it's just been like traced so many times that now it's, um, you know, he's Jay. He probably, uh, you know, he's the coach on a little league team. He runs some spy businesses and, you know, but he's really, really good at the like the work. You know, he's really good at selling it in those stupid YouTube videos. 
And I got so obsessed with him that I, I found his LinkedIn page. And I just want to read some stuff from his LinkedIn page and see if if you think any of this is year, real. So his LinkedIn page, he works under the name JJ Arms the Third, not JJ Arms the Two. He's a, he's he's a three on on LinkedIn. He graduated to the three. He graduated. Jay heads an international investigative and security firm, which has conducted high-profile investigations around the world for over fifty years. During his tenure at the investigators, Jay has expanded operations as well as a range of other services to include government security contracting, corporate security management, and executive protection services. Through his experience as a small business owner, Jay has assisted the investigative firm with online marketing and e-commerce. He understands the value of good employees and has successfully managed up to 400 security officers executing protection agents, private investigators, and multiple security contracts while simultaneously running the investigative firm. The programs designed by Jay for his security management clients were responsible for protection of thousands of employees on a daily basis, both in the United States and throughout Mexico. Jay has specialized in international kidnapping cases and has had extensive experience in the area. Few private investigators can claim that they have worked on a single case of this nature. Jay has personally worked on over 50 in various parts of the world. He has a very diverse, unique skill set, which enables him to provide the highest skills and services that his clients would require. As an entrepreneur, Jay currently owns and operates several security-related businesses, which include the retail spy store, an online spy store, and GPS tracking company. Jay's impressive knowledge of private investigation, security, security equipment, weaponry, surveillance, and counter-surveillance make him uniquely qualified to handle any investigation or security-related task. Specialties, private investigation, kidnap and ransom, homicide investigation, security consulting, surveillance, counter-surveillance, executive protection, loss prevention, background checks, field interrogation, firearms instruction, self-defense, and security devices. I, I don't think any of that's real. The It definitely isn't. The, the whole thing with, with, so with J.J. Arms III and his whole like syndicate of fucking investigators and all like, these things thousands of fucking operatives that he oversees and then jj arms seniors quote unquote his whole thing of how he has this like syndicate of operatives and there's six thousand uh people throughout the country or whatever it reminds me a lot of the fact that in the 60s before lee harvey oswald you know assassinated jfk he i mean at first he was obsessed with russia and he was like i'm a communist i want to be in russia and then he moved, he defected to Russia. And number one, they didn't even want him there, but he just, in his fucking insane, annoying way, he was able to figure out a way to stay there. He got but sick, he, right? Didn't he Didn't he get sick and he like stayed there for health reasons or something? Yeah, and then it was like he pretended like they had, he had defected and that they had accepted him as like an American defector. But in reality, they just like wanted him gone, but like through all these different technicalities he was able to stay there for like indefinitely but then he basically just discovered that he hated it he's like this fucking sucks i just work in a factory so then after he was disillusioned with russia he became obsessed with cuba as the as the communist paradise so he at one point he 
he said that he was a part of this Cuban communist organization in the United States called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was this national organization, this national communist organization. And he said, like, he was the president of the chapter in New Orleans where he was living at the time. And he was like, yeah, I'm the president of the of the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And there we have we have 3000 members here and all this stuff. And then later on, basically what ended up being found out was not only was he he was not a part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He had created his own made up version of it in New Orleans. He was the only member. It was he was the single member of it. And he had tried to join the actual committee. He had submitted like an application and they rejected it. So they were just like, no, we don't want you in the committee. And then he just said that he was in the committee and he said that there was 3000 members, but he was the sole member of his made up version of this committee. And it it reminds me a lot of that, of just like, if I can't, uh, if I can't be in the game, I'm just going to tell people I'm in the game and just and, I, and just one of the things that Gary Cartwright talks about in the article is that the way that JJ Arms kind of figured out how to be a private investigator and like work his way into the system is he got I mean low key a dude in the local El Paso Police Department felt bad for him and so he gave him ostensibly like an internship but they called it something else they called it like I don't remember the exact term now because uh, I didn't write it in the outline, but it's like deputy honorary constable or something like that. And so, so he was he was he was uh, awarded the uh, assistant to the what is it the the assist- regional manager assistant yeah. to the regional manager. <laughs> yeah, was- yeah. Basically, basically, he he the way he kind of built up a rep was he you know in the way that like in the way that like you know Sherlock Holmes is a is a consulting detective. Or, you know, Batman is working with Gotham Central, uh, you know, police department. That that literally happened with J.J. Arms, but it was really more just like, we got to give this guy something to live for. He doesn't have any fucking hands. So he's going to come with us on this crime scene, and we're going to show him around, and we're going to make him feel like he's part of the team. And then over time, he, like, wormed his way in there and would, like, basically get more and more and more and more and more power. Even though he wasn't a cop, wasn't a licensed private investigator didn't actually have any training in any of this he would he would find bounties on people or you know people that needed to be brought in and he would use el paso police infrastructure to help him in his private investigative exploits succeed so basically he'd like roll up to somebody's house that had a warrant out on them and he'd ask for two cop cars to go with him the two cop cars would sit out front he'd walk in to knock on the door and be like hi i'm private investigator jj arms uh is blah 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 here we have a warrant for their arrest i'm here with the el paso police department please don't run because i'm a portly middle-aged man with no hands and won't be able to chase you but you won't need to because the cops are here and you're scared shitless so just come with me right now yeah and they and they would and so over over time he like wormed his way into the system and exploited it in the way that a grifter would where he kind of just like he's that guy when you're working on a project at work and the project succeeds and everyone's like oh thanks you did such a great job and then there's a dude standing next to you who's like yeah we did a great job thank you yeah we we really we really work really hard he just like takes credit for shit by 
you know, he's a, he's like a association. Hound. Yeah. I mean, and then, and that's, you know, that's just the same thing. Like he talks about how he's like killed men before. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've, I've killed people. And like, he's like, I don't want to talk about it. Like it's too, it's too dark, but I've had to no kill. Way. No way. And like, it's, it's just so crazy because like, I mean, I've always really kind of had trouble wrapping my mind around the logistics of the private investigator like as a concept the fact that you know they're basically just uh they're they're just uh private sector citizens and they're able to like conduct these investigations and like where's the line of like what they can and can't do and like you know uh, and, and and the reality of the situation a lot of a lot of the times and you know a lot of what like real private investigators will say is like you know that it's not the romantic like fucking hard-boiled detective uh iconography that we that we know from from uh you know like film noir or whatever it's just like it's just like people like fucking serving subpoenas and shit and, and like, like and, and like, like one, one of the one of the one of the pis that was interviewed uh for the for the article the expose was just like yeah i don't even i don't have a gun like i'm not gonna carry around a gun like I'm just asking for somebody to like take my gun and shoot me with it. And like the idea of him just saying that he's killed people, like he's just a dude. Like if he killed somebody, he would be arrested for murder. Like he's not a cop. He doesn't have a fucking license to kill. He's not James Bond. Like if he killed somebody, he would go to jail for murdering. And like, that's one of the, one of the things in the, in the articles they, they talk about like, you know, what are the logistics of getting, of a hiring him and b using utilizing his services and so you know he he talks about in in every interview he always talks about how his quote is like fifty thousand dollars a day and all these crazy things and at one point gary cartwright talks to someone who tried to hire him and he quoted her something nuts like fifty thousand dollars for I, I forget exactly what she was trying to have him do. She was trying to have him look into somebody who was abusive or committed murder. It wasn't or even fifty thousand dollars. It was like he says that like he charges fifty thousand dollars. Like that's like the thing he says. That's yes, the kayfabe yeah. thing. But in reality, even his highball in a real case where somebody was actually hiring him, his highball was three thousand dollars. So even the starting highball thing was 3000 not 50000 and then she basically was like she basically haggled him down to 150 bucks which is back in the 70s was more than our conception of $150 but it was certainly wasn't $50000 that's for sure and then the, to make things even crazier the person that she's asking him to investigate for this $150 she calls him in a couple weeks later and is like, hey, what happened? Like, what did you find? And he's like, oh, yeah, I looked into it. And I feel like it was something like her daughter was marrying somebody. And he had a no, what it was, was that he uh, she had been uh, wrongly fired from her job for uh, claiming that the her manager was embezzling from the company. Right, 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 right. And right, so right. she wanted she wanted him to find out to get proof that he was embezzling. And so he looked into it and I'm, I'm doing air quotes with those giant hands from the Everlong music video by Foo Fighters. <laughs> um, and uh, he just literally called her and was like, he's clean. And then which, like, which not only, like which not only 
isn't even a satisfactory conclusion for the price that she paid for him, even if he was right. And even if he actually did investigate, even if he did investigate and did conclusively find out that he was clean, she deserved more than just a phone call where he says he's clean click, but he clearly didn't actually do anything because literally like two weeks later, the fucking bottom dropped out of his life. This, this manager guy. And he was found out that he hadn't been embezzling from this company for years. Yeah. JJ arms, ladies and gentlemen, JJ arms. And you can't even say that it was bad detective work. It was no detective work. It's clearly just a scam. He clearly, he makes his money off of a combination of doing things like what you were talking about earlier, where he just gloms onto situations and like, oh, I found out because I have access to a police radio that there's a warrant out for this person. So I'm just going to go to their house and basically just like fucking... I'm I'm the Mr. Satan or Hercule from Dragon Ball Z where I'm going to pretend like I'm the guy that's in charge of this. But in reality, it's just the cops going and arresting somebody and I'm just there. And then like somebody pays me money because they think that I was involved in it. He gets some, he makes his money off a combination of that and then also just straight up lying to people, getting hired to work cases, going home, eating three tubes of Pringles <laughs> and then calling them and saying, I did it. They're clean. Bye. I love it. And I, I, it's, it's, it's also really funny to me, the, like the stories that he tells, like the specific stories that he tells, like he tells the story on that, you know, like I said, he's like an 80 year old man. Now he's, he'll do any weird internet publicity that comes to him because why not? I mean, he's going to be dead soon and it's just trying to keep that legacy alive. Right. We really do and, ourselves a disservice by being honest about these people on the show because we can't get them to come onto the show because we're just talking about how shitty they are. So we can never actually honest, get these people to come on. Bro, I bet JJ Arms would, would come on the show. He's not going to listen to this. If we waited like 10 episodes, but the but the thing that's so interesting about him is like the bizarre details of the things that he gets into because that's like what makes a lie compelling, right? Is those details that feel authentic. And in one of the public access YouTube videos I was watching with him, he talks about, he tells a story about how he met Stan Lee. That interview is so fucking weird. It's, it's so weird. On it's all really, fronts. Do you want to set it up and then I'll read the, I'll read the, uh, what he said. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an interview on some religious public access show. If you watch it, you will fully assume it was shot in 1987 but it was shot in 2012. I don't know how they 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 achieved this fucking this 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 perfect period piece of a of a 1987 public access show um with this woman who I don't know if she is the regular host of the show, but it seems like not only is this the first time she's ever interviewed somebody not only is this the first time she's ever been in front of a camera, but it might be the first time she's been to Earth. <laughs> Asking the weirdest, most stilted questions of him in a way where she clearly didn't write the questions. She's just reading questions that somebody else wrote. 
and she asks all of them with the tone of somebody who's not 100% sure what they're saying, and they're just hoping that they're not pronouncing the words wrong. It's like interview as a second language. <laughs> yeah, and if and if J.J. Arms was ever a charismatic, smooth-talking dude, he lost it because he is so awkward. He is like, he is a dude trying to pretend like he's this hot shot, like basically like I'm sure back in the day, back in the 70s or whatever, during the time when the expose was written, his whole thing was he's walking around talking about how great he is, t telling these wild, wildly untrue stories, these war stories of crawling through the mud in Mexico to find Christian Brando. And this interview is like, he's still trying to do that, but his soul died 20 years ago. And so he's just going through the motions of... Yeah, it really is. It's really strange. He like... Because, you know, at, at one point, J.J. Arms was like, yeah, and then I've gotten 16 threats on my life, and I had to, I got stabbed in the rib, and I had to go over here and do that. And now he's just like this sad old man who's just kind of like, and then I had 16. He's, it's like a comedian doing a set for the 50th time. Yeah. And they just, there's no passion. He's saying the words, and then I got stabbed in between the second and third rib, and then I went to... Mexico and save Christian Brando and then like he's like asleep at the wheel basically yeah it's really weird so he, he in the interview he gets asked about meeting Stan Lee and these are the words that he says that is true I met Stan Lee when he was having a little problem with Marvel comics they were using his stories um using his material and not paying for it he asked me to come out to California so I did and after talking with me he said, I think you're the only one that can find the information for my attorneys. We discussed the problems, and I started working on the problems, and I found what he needed for the lawsuit for his uh, residuals. He ended up winning over $10 million in that lawsuit. When it was over, he said, I've got to use you in one of my movies that's about a real superhero that exists and not just a fictional character. And we started from there, and he's a very nice gentleman, a very, very nice person, very intelligent, obviously very creative. So what he's referencing is when Marvel and Sony didn't pay him residuals for the initial Spider-Man movie in 2000. There was a lawsuit there, which ended up with a settlement where Stan got... Wait a minute, J.J. Arms is the reason why fucking Stan Lee was in all those movies and those cameos? <laughs> I mean, I doubt that J.J. Arms is the reason, but maybe he talked to Stan about the lawsuit once in an elevator. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, so if you don't know that he sued Sony and Marvel and they got his settlement was he got editor emeritus status for life, a large cash payout and a cameo in every Marvel movie that would ever be produced which is why he's in all these movies, which is why people think he created the characters, not because Stan actually had anything to do with the fucking characters. Well, that's not true. He had something to do with some of them, but let's be real. Jack Kirby created all those fucking characters. Anyway, moving on, we'll do a whole episode about that at some point. This is so amazing to me. Like, none of this is true. Excelsior! Like, it, that's, my, it, that's my lawyer's last name. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, the lawsuit was about the residuals from the Spider-Man film and it branched off into other intellectual property stuff that Marvel was about to exploit. But 
Like, what is there for J.J. Arms to do private detective work on? I mean, like you said, number one, everything he says, I mean, you read the quote just now, so everyone heard it. Everyone heard how impenetrably vague it was. He doesn't say anything real. He just says a bunch of, like, vague bullshit. Uh, You know, what you said before, I think, is 100% correct. He just either maybe did meet Stanley and Stanley briefly like, oh, they, they're, they're, they're raking me over the coals right now. I got this thing going on, this lawsuit. And he just told him about this lawsuit during some random fucking conversation or even not that even he just read about it. He never actually met Stanley. Who knows? But either way, this was a story he ter- he heard. And with little understanding of the specific details of it, he's just pretending like he was involved in some way. And it reminds me of it reminds me of uh, interviews with Sophia Stewart. And when she's trying to explain some of the specifics of her lies, where it's like just speaking in really vague terms. And you can tell that they don't actually know the details of it. So any person that has even like a slight bit of understanding of it would immediately realize like, oh, you're just talking out of your ass. Like you don't, you're, you do not know what you're talking about. But for all the rest of the people who don't know, they're just like, eh, sounds right. I mean, even just the fact that he was like, yeah, Stan Lee told me he has to put me in one of his movies. Stan doesn't make movies. Like he just doesn't make movies. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. He was going to put me in the season two of Stripperella. Well, no, what was that? What was that fucking? Oh, Stanley's rea- superheroes or whatever. Yeah, the, the reality is. show, real, real life superheroes. Yes, yeah. so stupid, so stupid. Yeah, I. It's it's amazing. I I love the level of commitment to one's craft that JJ Arms exhibits, and you know his craft is telling bold faced lies, having no internal moral compass and being shady as fuck and raising another generation of shady as fuck people. The, the yeah. Interesting- and I, and I, I said, I said we were going to plant that seed and let it flourish the kayfabe seed. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to tag on to what I talked about uh, earlier so that all, all the way back to that article in 1953, where the, the local article about him where they where they interview his mom uh you know you you might assume that a lot of these stories were things that he sort of like retroactively came up with that they were like retcons of like as he started to become famous or infamous or as he just started to build his brand he started coming up with these stories retroactively but he was telling some of those stories he was telling him since back then like if you re- go back and read that article the, from 1953 and like he talks about they talk about him being in the movies and they talk about that fake uh, story about how he was discovered in LA and noticed because of his hands and then he was put into a movie called Am I Handicap like and like that he was telling that lie all the way back then in 1953 he was telling that lie he was telling the lie about being in movies he was telling the lie like these these seeds were planted early on like he went he was in it for the long con yeah and 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 and, 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 you know it's who knows which way it is but either he was lying to his own family about these things or his family was like in on it 
like he was like, "Mom, tell him that you've seen a movie I was in." Let me let me ask you this: Do you think that there is you know we we've kind of started mining this vein of like American men who lie about their accomplishments? Do you think that there's some? Sort I mean, of- I'm just a bunch of ducks in a suit. <laughs> Do you think that there's like a connection between the American dream in air quotes and, you know, the work hard and you'll succeed and and, you know, these this specific type of person who tries to hack that system? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, is there is it is there almost like a mathematical equation that's like for every societal truism, there's one point one seven percent of the population that will try to use life hacks to fulfill that truism to its extreme cartoonish degree a hundred percent i mean the concept of fake it till you make it is ingrained in our dna that's that's anybody who has any conception of what it means to be successful that is just the path it's like there's no like if 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 you if you achieve success through a normal pathway like it almost doesn't count it's like it's like yeah you just you just worked really hard and fucking slowly got promotion after promotion and climbed the ladder like fuck that you piece of shit like you gotta like have this fucking whiz bang like i i had no experience and i just walked out there and said i was a surgeon and now i'm like like and and that's not you laugh but that's fucking true like like uh ben carson his whole life story is a lie like like he was a talented surgeon he wasn't just a fake surgeon who didn't go to medical school but his whole fucking mythology was a lie he had that book yeah that that book gifted hands which i read when i was a kid my teacher thought he was like the fucking most inspirational human alive and he had all those stories about how basically his whole thing was that he overcame a deep um primordial anger and rage that was beset upon him by his upbringing and it was this you know he was born into a into a situation where he was on track to be this basically he was like i'm gonna be go to prison or die like i'm i had this rage and there was a turning point in my life where i got so angry at this kid that i actually stabbed him i took out my knife and i stabbed him but I happened to stab him. He was wearing this ROTC belt uh, and I just happened to stab him and it saved his life. And that was like a turning point in my life. And I, from that moment on, I turned my life around and I took control of my anger and rage and I went to medical school and then I ended up separating, being the first doctor to separate twins or or separate uh, conjoined twins. Um, And then, you know, a couple years ago, it was discovered that that's all fake. Like, he he didn't he was like a normal kid he had no behavioral problems he didn't have any like he didn't stab that kid that never happened like it was all just lies um but uh what, what was i saying i, I got off track I, with I ben carson until you make it you know kind yeah, of yeah yeah that, that that's that's ingrained into our lives and some people are just we talked about this before we talked about this on the sophia stewart episode that we that was the whole thing we talked about some people just do not possess the self-awareness to like know where that line is and they'll just but there's there is there is a difference between sophia stewart who is mentally unwell like that doesn't give her a pass 
because she refuses to seek help and she refuses to um, acknowledge the the harm she's doing and the mistruths yeah, she's but I, spreading. This guy knows. This guy knows yeah. exactly what he's doing. But I, th- I think I don't think you have to be mentally unwell to possess that lack of self-awareness. I think you can know what you're doing and not really understand how what you're doing is affecting things, especially when you start to believe your own bullshit. Like, especially when you start to really believe that you've done this, that you convinced yourself that what you're saying is actually true and then it becomes true to you. Uh, So, you know, I, I, I think I do think that JJ Arms is fully aware of what he's doing. He's a grifter, but he lacks that that filter that stops him from becoming a cartoon character. This fucking guy, man. And it's funny because we talked about on on the James Bond episode, uh, we were talking about George Lazenby and how he um, I had read this, you know, in a couple in a couple uh, in a couple interviews with him that he he basically um, he had said a couple times that when he when he went into that movie theater and he saw Connery as James Bond, he walked out of the theater being like, I got to become James Bond. But he didn't mean play in the movie. He wanted to really be James Bond. Like he wanted to just become that guy. And then after he sort of like came down from that weird abstract thinking, he was like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. So I'm just going to go become the actor. And J.J. Arms is kind of like the opposite of that, where like he 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 tried to become an actor and it didn't work. So he found another path and it was like i'm going to really become james bond yeah his his it you know the the bill o'reilly fuck it we'll do it live yeah that that's his whole life is fuck it we'll do it for real yeah he 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 thought that he could uh utilize his his uh unique set of circumstances to build a build hype around himself and become an actor and it didn't quite work out because of whatever set of circumstances whether it was never destined to work out in the first place or whether that producer dying really did just like topple a it momentum. It didn't. Uh, it didn't. It's, but for whatever the crazy, reason, the craziest thing about that, the investigator TV movie is that it wasn't, they're going to make a movie about me. They're going to make a movie and I'm going to play me like yeah. that. There's just that. I mean, yeah, the seventies was a weird time, but he's not a charismatic person like he's really stiff and weird and awkward and like there's a mag there's like an animal magnetism around arnold schwarzenegger he's not a good actor but man he's a great performer yeah and jj arms is not a good performer he's not even a particularly good liar he just does it so much kind of in a trump-esque way where people just get overwhelmed by it and they're like i guess it's true fuck it so yeah whatever you say man Yep. Uh, but yeah, so so that didn't work out, and so he was just like, eh, like I I can't I can't be a movie star, so like I'm just gonna become a real life fucking member of the A team. I'm gonna be my own A team. Be the yeah. A team you want to see in the world. But that first time that you're chasing a bad guy, and you're like, ah, it's actually kind of harder to jump over fences than I thought it would be. Then it's like, okay, well, I can't really be the the A team. But I can tell everybody that these things happened. I can stand next to the local El Paso Police Department at press conferences and smile. 
Yeah. 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 Any any closing thoughts on old dirty JJ Arms? Um, I mean, no. I, I mean, yeah. I think we. I think we. I think we pretty well covered it. Um, this has been Deep Cuts. I'm Dave Baker, <laughs> and I'm Andrew Price. Please sub the show. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com where you can find comics like Action Hospital and Fuck Off Squad and Action Hospital 2 and 3 and Professor Cuties and a bunch of other stuff I've made. Where can people find you on the internet, Andrew? You can find me hanging out in the tiger cage on my 60-acre compound. Um, And you can also find me at dapricerights.com. Fuck yeah, we did it! We done it. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.